This is a podcast about answering one question. Are you on a journey that matters enough to you? To answer this question, you're going to need to dive right into your middles. I'm obsessed with middles. I've come to think that middles deserve another look. To ensure that you are on a journey that matters enough to you, buckle into that middle seat and let's go on this adventure together. Hashtag welcome aboard. All right, welcome everybody to today's podcast. I have the pleasure of introducing the one and only Malia Morris. And I'll give you a brief intro before I let her have the mic. Malia's education is a fascinating one. She received her bachelor's in sociology from Arizona State. She received her master's at Harvard in dramatic arts. And Malia has been a voice teacher for 10 years now, over 10 years. Uh, She's taught both in California and in Texas. She currently is a professional actress and vocalist. That's what she spends her time doing. She's been in over 100 musicals. Some of her favorites have been The Children of Eden. You know, I can't argue that is a really good choice. Uh, Bye Bye Birdie. She's been Cinderella. And I'd say predominantly in the past five years or so, Malia spent a lot of her time doing concert work and heavily enjoyed it. She's been in California for quite a bit now in the Bay Area, and she's thriving as a vocal teacher, not unexpectedly at all but taking kind of a different journey in that path. And so Malia is a fascinating person to talk to because I share the theater connection with her, right? Because um, I grew up performing, Malia grew up performing, both of us since we were little kids. And it's been interesting to me to watch Malia's journey because Malia has taken some very traditional paths along her performing arts journey, and she's taken some non-traditional paths on her journey. And I've done the same. And so that's really interesting But I think another interesting thing about Malia is how she's really brought in all of her journey together instead of separating it out. And so it wasn't just, oh, I'll be a performer and then I'll have, then I'll be a parent, then I'll have kids and I'll get married. It was, it all kind of happened at the same time. And so that's been an interesting thing to navigate. And I know that for our audience, a lot of us, um, our journeys aren't linear and we're uh, doing a lot of things at the same time. And Leah can take us on our journey. I think you're going to hear a lot of that and hear a lot of the middles um, that have uh, been a major, major source for her on the journey. So with that intro, Malia, welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to spend an hour with us. Well, thank you for having me, Mala. That was a really nice introduction. Do what I can. It's not hard to introduce you. It's very, very easy. Um, how are you doing with COVID? Like, how are, how are you doing professionally, personally? Man, uh, COVID is tough. I think it's one of the most creative periods of my life because it's forced me to really think outside the box. So starting at the beginning of the year, I had a lot of momentum going. In performing in San Francisco, we have general auditions that happen every February where the professional theaters in the Bay Area come to one general audition. So I had just done my generals. I was just receiving callbacks from theaters in March, early March, about a week before we had shut down here in Northern California. I sang with a symphony in Las Vegas and I came home to everything shut down. All of my callbacks shut down, all of my professional work shut down. So I spent the month of March just sort of centering myself emotionally. I think if one thing I've realized about being in middles is that if I'm not centered emotionally where I'm at, that I can't really make progress in the professional or personal aspects of my life. So I had to kind of sit back and figure out where I needed to be emotionally before I could make a pivot on how to keep creating during a very non-traditional time. So let me pause really quickly. January and February, pretty booked or booked booked enough. Right. And happily, happily. So you come back to the Bay area. This all kind of went down March 10th, 11th, 12th Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And the whole, it felt like the whole Bay area was on pause at a standstill. Is that kind of how it felt to you or? Yeah, that's exactly how it was. So I'm very fortunate that I had that last gig right before it happened. It happened on March 8th. Mm. So I very, (laughs) I came home to just the world done and Mm. things had been winding down already. There had been a couple callbacks and things that I had already turned down because I was concerned 
you know, when you're sitting in a room and you're singing with a lot of people and you're touching people and you're being creative and interacting, I was a little nervous because here in the Bay, we knew that we had COVID. Yeah. Probably more than anywhere else had it just with our connection to traveling in Asia. So I was already cautious. Even when I went to my performance in March, you know, I had to sing with, I think I was a soloist, but I sang with a choir. I think there was about three or 400 people. Yeah. So this was big. Yeah, it was really big. big. So when I was interacting with them, I, I always had that in my mind of like, oh my gosh, please, please don't get sick or I, I don't want to catch COVID. So professionally and otherwise, I was already being impacted by COVID, but I didn't feel the full brunt of the impact until I came home March 9th. Mm. And truly, I think it was what, two days later, it went into full lockdown. So, and I don't think anybody really knew what was going to happen. I think for me and for a lot of people, it was sort of a waiting period of like, okay, is this going to lift? Is work going to you know, reestablish? And as, as time progressed, you know, I started kind of looking down at the year and what was going to happen. And I realized, you know, I'll be lucky if I get to perform in person next year. And that's if I'm lucky. I can't really foresee a point in time when people are going to want to come in a room full of thousands of people and wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Fun. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, so realistically, I was looking at the year thinking, okay, I already have my teaching practice, which thankfully I already had that in place. So that wasn't something new that I had to create. Got it. But as I started thinking about it, I thought, okay, how can I maybe suss out areas of my career or of my business that I really haven't done? Because truthfully, teaching has always just kind of followed me because I'm a vocalist, because people hear me sing. I get hit up for voice teaching every single week, if not every single day. So Okay, so it's a pattern where you're used to it. I'm totally Mm -hmm. used to it. I'm used to interfacing with people, but I wanted to, to... spend time really developing my business because truthfully, I don't really develop my business. It usually finds me. I didn't really have a model because I didn't really need it. And part part of that is because I spent a lot of my time performing. So I really wanted to have a good balance between performing professionally and teaching. So it, it was sort of this balance of, you know, not wanting to spend too much time on my business, but also like I am my business, right? So like my brand, my working with people that I saw that as sort of separate. And what COVID has done for me is to realize how can I sort of sync all of these things together? I'm I'm already doing the work, right? So it's like, how do I sync all of this together? And I really shied away from, you know, having a YouTube channel, having Uh an Instagram for my business, having a, a TikTok and I just kind of jumped in. I thought, well, I, what what excuse do I have not to? I mean, I, I joke <laughs> that I, I don't have anything going on, which is a lie. I have a lot going on. But I mean, I don't right. have those regular activities that we all think are really important. You know, all these to-do lists yep. that we have, those are gone. So it, it kind of gives me the opportunity to sit with myself and say, okay, well, what else can I be doing in the middle yep. of this middle? <laughs> I love it because when, when we talk middles, I mean, if we... I'm referring to, you know, a point on your journey where the beginning is, is far behind and the ending is unknown or unforeseeable perhaps, or it just seems really far, but you don't quite know what it is. So here you are as a performer, you've been teaching forever. Like that's not nothing new. Right. And so that, that beginning is far behind. Um, But when you're going to end teaching isn't even a question yet because you're pretty successful at it. And turns out you enjoy it, which is the best of both worlds. So that's going on, right? So here you are in this middle going, uh, well, what's to lose? Like, why not? And so you talk about creative freedom and I can hear it. You know, I can hear you saying, well, TikTok, why not? I promise if I had called you four weeks ago, we wouldn't have talked about TikTok, right? That's right. (laughs) Like, there's no way we'd be talking about TikTok because neither of us, we're not anti-TikTok. It's just, we don't really, I mean, it's there, right? And it's like, we think of it being there for like, 15 year olds. I'm like, sweet, enjoy that social platform. That's not for me. To my detriment, I think that I sort of have shied away from doing things like that because I didn't yeah. feel like it was worth my time. I didn't feel uh, like, I felt like it was something so separate from mm-hmm. a business model. But I think if anything, what COVID has taught me is that everything is kind of on the table. 
sort of yeah. like we, we have this time where we have to be as creative as possible as we can at reaching mm. people, at being creative. And so it was a good lesson for me to realize that there's a lot of ways to access people. There's a lot of different ways to access yep. teaching. Yep. It doesn't mm -hmm. always have to be a one-on-one -on -one sitting in front of someone. Mm -hmm. It can be something as simple as truly a one-minute blip, which is what a lot of my teaching is. It's just giving you know a one-minute how to mix, how to belt, how mm. to uh, access your upper register, how to not have tension in your face. So just really, really simple one minute blips and just how much momentum there's been beyond that. Mm. So yeah, it's been good for me. I think that if anything, a middle can teach you is how to maybe push away the things that you were afraid of doing because you thought they were invalid or you thought that they weren't worth the time and really challenging yourself to let go of whatever preconceptions you have and say, yep. is there something I'm missing? Let's go back to your degree really quick. Cause I know you were doing music dance theater. I was given your background and then you switched to sociology, which, why did you make that switch? Yeah. So if we, we go back just a little bit, I, you know, I grew up again in a home with a, a single mom and I remember going into senior year. And at that point I, I had sort of decided in high school that I was that kid that, you know, missed school a lot because my mom didn't really care if we went to school. She wasn't really interested in, you know, following societal norms. So I remember a teacher my freshman year just saying, you are under undervaluing yourself with your potential. You really need to step up. And for whatever reason, that resonated with me because for years I was being raised in a family system that just said, you know, what you're doing now is fine. What does it matter what anybody else thinks? So it really challenged me to sort of look at my life and see, do I really want to repeat the mistakes of my parents or right. do I want to sort of step out and see what I'm capable of doing? So it challenged me. By the time I got to my senior year, I was, uh, <laughs> it was funny. I was choir president. I was in student council. Yeah, you um, were. And so that one challenge, because yeah. that could have been an offense right? To, to another. And I was offended. I was offended. I, I ah. remember being like, what? No. Like who, who do you think you are? And it just, it sort of was a, a pivot point for me to realize my potential. And that wow. really was such a fundamental moment for me. I Huge. think I was four, 14 or 15. Huge. And so by the time I get to senior year, I've improved so much. I'm taking AP classes. I have all these teachers wow. that are coming to me saying, I want to help you get into college. You know, they knew my family situation. I want to help you get into college. Let's help you take that. Eight, Wait, so let know. me pause. So this is like night, this is night and day transition. Yeah. So you were offended. That's really important to note because you, yeah. you were ticked. I was annoyed, very much annoyed. <laughs> Going, oh, you know what? If you just chat, that was, was that a direct challenge here? Bring it, bring it. So you start to elevate your game. It's almost as if she gave you permission to soar or permission to go for big things. Is that, is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. And your family, your, your mother certainly wasn't doing that, right? No, not yeah. at all. Okay. Not, okay. not even in the minimum. Wow. In fact, I had just missed, I think like a week of school for, for wow. no reason. And when I got my makeup work from my teacher, that's when she challenged me and just said, come on, I know you're better than this. So I'm saying wow to the listeners because if you know Malia right now, she wouldn't miss a week of school if your life depended on it, right? No. So I'm going, wow, this is this is so interesting. So the challenge is there. You are offended, ticked, fill in the blank, and you rise. And then by the time your senior year happens, they're going, well, let us help you apply for college. Is that what happened? Yeah. They said, let's take the SAT. Let's take the ACT. I, and your reaction was? I had a lot of friends that were doing it. I didn't know what it was. And I was too embarrassed oh. to ask and to investigate it because oh. even though I had made strides, I was still really nervous about putting my neck out there because everything felt very tenuous, right? I had, I had sure. built this foundation. I was moving. And even though my mom's family is... Uh, very, very educated. My grandmother went to college in the fifties when most women, you know, never graduated from college. So I had, mm. I had these amazing role models, but in my, you know, immediate family, I had a very different situation. So right. I ended up just attending junior college for the first two years. And I have zero regrets about that. I feel, I feel very proud that I went from junior college to an Ivy league. I think 
it, if anything, it shows that if I can do it, I think anybody can do it truly because I went from, you know, not, and, and even in college, truly, I had a lot of family stuff that was going on at the time and moving out of the house was a really good thing for my studies and interpersonally. So my first semester of college was fine. And then second semester hit and it was just a slump. I really, really struggled and I wanted to quit. And my grandmother. So so, so back up. So the JC, I'm assuming you go to the JC because of testing or because of funding or because of cost was primary. I had no money. I mean, okay, there we go. Right. Okay. Like, yep, no money. Sense. Nobody yep. helping me figure out mm-hmm. how to get scholarships, which mm-hmm. at the time I'm like looking back, I could have easily had a scholarship somewhere, but I I mm. didn't even know where didn't to know. begin. Didn't know the system. Right. Got it. Okay. So after second year, you're just not into it. You're I'm, slumping. I am, and and because I had emotional things going on with my family and you know my personal life, so I wanted to quit. And I I was living with my grandmother, and I said I think I'm going to quit. And she, Ooh, in her let's wise go. What'd wisdom, she, say? she says, well, okay, what, what if you just take one class next semester? And I thought about it and I said, okay, I, I can commit to one. And she said, well, if you're doing one, what about two? If you just commit to two, you can just stop there and just see what happens and then, you know, decide. So I took those two classes and- Challenge in, offered, challenge those, offered, challenge right. accepted- in those two classes, I had a sociology class and I had been doing, you know, music, dance, theater, and it was fine. It was great. I had just been doing that my whole life because of my grandparents' theater and because of their performing arts school. Right. So I, I felt like I was just being internally challenged to something and maybe personally because I was learning about why my family was interacting the way they was. And it was sort of a lifeline of understanding it and how to process it. So from there... I transitioned into a full semester the following semester. And that that was pivotal for me because had I dropped out, I don't know that I would have gone back. Mm. Why wouldn't you have? I mean, really, Best it's, guess right now. It just finances is one, you know, when you're in a lower socioeconomic right. class, it's really right. difficult if you're not in there to understand emotional poverty, which is much harder to break out of than fiscal poverty. Mm. So it's something that, which is why I'm very heavily involved in a first-gen college scholarship program here right? because it's something that until you experience it firsthand, you don't really understand that it's not because people don't want it or because they aren't able to. There's just so many internal family dynamic things that really impact your ability to succeed. Wow. So, okay. So there, so now you're, you're at a four-year, you're at Arizona State. Right. 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 So and, that actually happened yeah. after I got married. I was still attending a junior college when I met my spouse okay. and he helped me with that process of getting over because there's some agreement with the junior colleges with Arizona State that if you you know, finish, that you get uh, admittance into the school, it's easier to get admitted. And at that point, the same thing when I had slumped and my grades went down in junior college, the same thing happened. I was challenged again. I rose to the occasion. I graduated with I don't even remember my GPA. It was over 4.0. Right. It was something. Um, and I was on the dean's list. And I'm really proud of that because of course. I could have just coasted. Right. But then I transferred to ASU. I got into sociology. I loved it. And in fact, mm. I had a lot of professors that really challenged me to go into social work or stat this I you're gonna laugh at this go being a statistician because I was really good at statistics I would have pegged you for it Malia I would have pegged you for it parentheses sarcasm (laughs) not at all like not at all right I'm terrible at math I cry I would cry in in undergrad math classes because I was just not I just not natural to me and something that I've learned and I, I apply in my practice with teaching students is that you know the growth mindset it really mm-hmm. is not about mm-hmm. innate ability. It's more about if you are willing to do the work. And if you're willing to do the work, you're going to make progress. Right. right? And that's that's been your journey. I wonder, Malia, do, do you ever wonder what it would have been like without the challenges? Like without those inflection points? Because clearly for you, they're pivotal in you taking action. They're huge. Right. They're huge. Right. And, whether, and, and I think what's interesting about to note about them is that of course you're human and have emotional reactions to them. It's easy for a listener 
to go, oh yeah, the challenge. Oh, and she loves a challenge, challenge accepted. Off she goes. But I'm guessing that a lot of the challenges that are, that we've already heard about and challenges in the future, it's not always that reaction, which is like, oh, this is so great. No, it's actually, I sense a lot of resistance in the challenge and the resistance actually is part of the game. Right. Um, And and they take time. They take time. This was not like someone says something to me or something happens. I reach an obstacle and I think, oh, I'm going to do X. It's, it, it took time. It took probably a full semester for me to realize that I needed to kick into gear and to change tactics and figure out what I was going to do. And when I was in high school, when I changed gears, that was the process over, you know, a year or two of me, you know, climbing the ranks and doing what I needed to do. And when I graduated, you know, even from high school, I graduated with honors. I graduated with the wow. principal's award, which is awarded to uh, a student that shows the most promise and academic right. ability. So I, I had these really, you know, outward external validation that was helping. And it was more yes. about me accepting and being humble enough to accept the internal part of it. Right. It, it, yeah. Cause it, takes, hmm, I mean, that takes the intrinsic work is where the power is, right? You, you, we've, we've talked about that, but it's, it takes, that's where I'm talking about the, um, the resistance, right? Right. Cause internal, we can have the external, but the resistance in, it can really prevent the internal. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. And so then graduate from Arizona state in sociology. And are you thinking, wow, what do I do? What do I do next? Or are you just like, this is so awesome. I have a degree. Like, well, are you, I think I was and you're super married proud at of that myself. point. Right. I'm married. I'd been married for, I think, almost two years. But I think like most liberal arts majors, I went, oh, no, what do I right. do? <laughs> right. And I had a dad who drilled it in. Like, if you don't have a job at the end of the... So, again, our backgrounds, right? Because my yeah. background really shaped the way that I went in. Your background did, too. So you hit the moment, you graduate, and you're like, oh, my gosh, what? Like, what do I do now? Right? Yeah. I get to Cambridge, and I have a friend who helps me network to get a job teaching theater in an after-school program. So you're Cambridge because your husband got into Harvard Law. Right, right. So he he was doing that, and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. And, and again, same thing of me being challenged, finding programs. And so I think I'm going to go to Boston Conservatory. I think, oh, it's great. It's a great fit for me. Wait, let me back up. Let me back up. So for a listener, so Malia, this is one of the most prestigious music schools in the country, if not the world. Right. So what made you think that that was a, that you had a shot? Yeah. So blind, blind hope. (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) let's, let's get real. I, I had had 20 years at that point of theater instruction, uh, I had been in, you know, at least a hundred musicals, concerts, et cetera, et cetera. So I had a lot of ability and I felt like, you know, this is what's going to give me validation to sort of like cement my life and cement my career and give me everything I need to kind of figure out what's going on with my life. So I decided to audition for the master's program. When you walked away from the audition, what'd you think? I felt so good. So good. So there you go. You audition. You feel really, really good. And end result? I do not get in. So what what happened? It was devastating because I just felt like it was the next step for me. Mm. And it was really the first attempt I had made outside of the nest, outside of Arizona, outside of my comfort level to say, what if? And it did not happen. And it was devastating. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I I thought, man, if this institution does not validate my acceptance, what does that say about my ability? I think looking back, they were right. I was not a good fit for that program because I think what would have happened is I would have experienced the same thing that happened in my undergrad where I was in a program that, you know, on paper looks perfect for me. And then when you get into it, you realize, eh, This isn't really what I want to be doing, which is why the program I eventually came into was such a perfect fit at the time. It was just perfect. When we, when we shoot for the stars and when we feel good about our journey there and know that we're, we're, cause you put a lot of weight on this one, right? This was, this is, this was going to be you making it and not just making it as a performer, but really making it as an adult, uh, making it as a professional, making it as a, yeah, also a performer. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, Mm -hmm. 
like the rug is just under like gone. And that wasn't even expected because you felt pretty good about it. Right. And mm-hmm. so did all, I'm assuming so did all of your cohort and all of your friends and all the people that were really invested in you making it too. Mm-hmm. So you don't make it. I mean, when I think about that, it just, it's just so hard to be with. Like, I can't imagine how that felt for you, given that it wasn't just about performing. It wasn't. It was about so much more. It was about you know? me finding an institution to validate me. Please right. validate me. Please say I'm worthy. Please say that I'm talented. Which, by the way, or... we all do. Yeah. We all do that. Yeah. Because I was, my next question is going to be, okay, so you're starting you know, to, to talk about this, this program that you found or that found you, however we want to phrase that, but still it's not Boco. No. Like that extrinsic reward is gone. Like that's off the table. So you can never put that on your resume anymore. You can no. never talk around, oh yeah, I went to Boston and da, 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 right? Like you can't, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just, I think a lot of us sit with that it's not a justification of, but I went on and did something better. Like, it's not that it's just going, no, as an adult, we have to realize there's a cost to not having that on a resume. There's yeah. a cost period. Yes. And I don't, ah, like, I wish that we could just, cl- I wish there wasn't right. I wish that there was mercy on all of this, but when you go out into the world, there's not in a lot of ways, right. Not to impose my own, my own experience. Right. But it's like, wow, this is weighted so heavily by so many people and your validity and credibility and all the things are right. So I feel for you and I wasn't even there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, it was, it was a very instructive time for me to sort of do the, the internal work. Intrinsic work, huh? Do I need an institution to validate me? What am I looking for in myself that I need? I can't feel validated on my own. And yeah, I wish I could say that that has been fully resolved. It hasn't. I still <laughs> feel this feeling. I still feel you're a human being walking right. on the planet. Right. Right. I get it. It's a process, right? Absolutely. I think it's less about having an ego about it. One, one kind of like contract that I make with myself is like conflict is the contract we make with life, right? Like it's there. Conflict is the contract we make with life. Okay, go on. So it's less about if there's conflict and how we choose to process that conflict. What do we do with it? Mm. And I was only 23 at the time when this happened. So it was a period of me sort of thinking, you know, what what do I want to do with this? Where do I go? What happens? And it, you know, it's easy to look back now and say, oh, well, I hopped on to the next thing and this is what I chose to do. You know, there was some, there was some soul searching. There was some trying to figure out what, what I needed to do and what possibilities I was maybe overlooking because I was looking so narrowly at this one thing. And this is something that I take into my teaching practice, right? Is like, instead of being so narrowly focused on the goal, think about, you know, and this is, this is from Atomic Habits, but like, think about the identity shift. Think about the journey. Think about those things that are are happening to you as you travel, as opposed to saying, if I don't become a major league baseball player, I've failed because that's such a polarizing way to live your life. It's very sad. If you, if you think that you're, you know, your goal is what makes you valid, if you never reach it, or what if you do, and you get up to the top and you realize, wow, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, you're going to feel disappointed. And so it's more about what is the journey and how can I find happiness or the happiness is the wrong word. How can I find fulfillment fulfillment in this journey? Right. And I think it's so natural, you know, it as well as I do that it's a really basic desire to want to feel validated, right? And so until we develop all those intrinsic muscles, until we go to a deeper source, even a spiritual source, I'll, I'll say, whew, it's hard to just to fail at things or we'll relabel it, you know, we'll upgrade our language with that. But with the time, it feels like a failure, right? Okay, so here you are, Boko's a no-go, and then your husband introduced you to another program. Is that right? Yeah, so he saw he, he saw me just trying to figure out what to do because really if you're not attending Boston Conservatory in Boston, you know, there's other great programs, but it's just if for what I wanted to do and study, it was the school, right? There's Berkeley, there's It's Emerson, Berkeley also. Yeah. Right. But but for musical theater. For theater. Boco. Boco. So I didn't really know what to do. I just 
And at this point, I'd already missed the deadline to a lot of other schools for their audition programs. So I'm looking at the fall going, you know, what am I going to do? I was auditioning. I think it was in February. So he says, well, I have this program I think that might work for you. And it's at Harvard. And I think that it it could work. Uh, It's through the Division of Continuing Education. And they have this whole program with the American Repertory Theater, which is a big deal in the world of yep, theater. Yep, it is. So I thought, oh, well, it's not musical theater, though. It's more drama. Is that something that I really want to do? And I looked into the program. I looked at the professors. I looked at the kind of work that I would be doing. And I thought, you know, I think this is a good program because it still enables me to have a job and, you know, do what I need to do. It was very flexible. And so I did. I jumped in. I started the program. And I did just you get in right away. It. I love, yeah. So my program was different. So it's much easier to be accepted into the school, but the matriculation rate is at 13%. It was when I graduated. So it's wow. very, very low because mm-hmm. when you write your thesis, you have to get a tenured Harvard professor to sponsor your research. Mm. So it's kind of, it's opposite from like the law school where the front end is much harder to get into versus, you know, when you get into the school, uh, I hope I'm not leaking any secrets, but there are a lot of students who do not do well and still graduate and, you know, are fine. And they still have that extrinsic reward. Right. You still have the degree. Right. I get in, I start my program and I love it. And funnily enough, how it happens is my voice teachers at the college are Boston Conservatory teachers. No, no. Oh, this is getting good. It all comes full circle. It came full circle. And it's funny because I remember saying to them after working with them for a semester, you know, I auditioned. I didn't get accepted. And they were floored. They were floored. And so it it was maybe personally fulfilling to me that I was like, you know, (laughs) that's validating. I, I feel good. I feel good in my ability. And feeling good in your ability is not being blind to the progress you can make. It's, it's more about feeling confident and coming to the table with a confident product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's sort of what that experience was. And then during the program, you know, we decided to have a baby, as one does when you're both in Harvard okay. programs. All right, we got to back up on that one. Okay, so how – okay, so walk us through that decision. Because, I mean, you're both, you're both sailing, you're sailing, not literally sailing, but you're soaring. You're doing well in both of your programs. And then what What had you, yeah, was this a group decision? Was it even a decision and just a surprise? I mean, how did this? It was a total surprise. It popped up out of nowhere. I was 25. We had been married for five years at that time. And I had not wanted to have children because, you know, David wasn't a part of my plan. If I was being honest, I didn't think I would get married till my 30s because of- Thank you. That's what I wanted to know. My own trauma with my family, with everything. So uh, he jokes that I had to wait five years to decide if whether or not he was (laughs) worth having a child with. (laughs) I don't think that's entirely inaccurate. No no harm, no foul, right? (laughs) Yeah. I I look back now and I'm like, damn, I was smart. Like I was making sure that this guy, you know- I've heard some horror stories. So well, and I, you're this old, ripe old age of 25 at this I, point. So I just, shoot, it was it was time. I was getting old. No, I yeah. So I just I I wish I could tell you that there was some sort of like miraculous thing that happened, but I just remember us having a discussion about it and spending the intervening months thinking about it. And I just thought, you know, yeah, why not? Like we're doing. Our, basically, at this point, our life was so unscripted. We were doing things that nobody in our family had done. In fact, when my husband got accepted to HLS, his parents wanted him to go to a different school that was much less prestigious, but it was because it was something that in their value system was really important. Wow. And so we were really Excuse reaching- me, son. Please, please don't reach that far. Yeah. Please. And it's scary. Yeah. I get it. It's scary, right? Yeah. Because as a parent, you're thinking like, you've never been to Boston, you've never lived, you know, elsewhere in the United States. Like, you know, it's a scary prospect, especially in our families where, you know, we are, I think my husband was the first of his siblings to go to graduate school, I believe. And now he has siblings that are, you know, doctors, uh, Isn't that neuroscientists, interesting? you know, mm-hmm. engineers. So, so yeah, it, 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 it's, 
it's happened, but we were really kind of the first ones to sort of break away. And certainly in my family, I mean, I'm a first gen, so this was all entirely figure it out as you go. And your family's like, Harvard, where is that? <laughs> right right but yeah my, my mom was like oh you know yeah versus you know my my grandma was thrilled they were, they were very excited for me but yeah it, it was a different it just was a different world for us and that's hard of for course. people to grasp that we didn't in certain you know economic groups those things feel so normal to the you know economic group I find myself now in but for so many people, that is such a reach and a foreign concept. Well, and for your current economic group, it's really not commonly recognized that it's a privilege, I would say. 100%. 100%. It's just, it's just life. It's just how you do it. And oh my word, heaven forbid you don't get into that school or don't make it into that firm, right? Then we have a conversation to have to, you know. So we'll go back to having a baby and you just felt that it was right. Was that just, that can be a simple answer and that's great. You just, you and David thought through it and you just thought, well, if not now, when and why not? That's kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, really, we, we just, yeah, we just kind of went for it and it felt at the time it felt really good. And I look back now and again, I'm like, man, we were so brave. We were just brave because we were, we were having this baby on the other side of the country with no family, no help. And we did it. We did it. And we've continued to raise our children, not living in the same state as family or the same state as our family, which I, there are many pros and cons to that. Right. Uh, but yeah, we just kind of did it. I, again, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not self-aggrandizing here. We're not pioneers. I think what it is, is that within our given families, we were doing things that were so far ahead what we thought we could ever accomplish. And so Isn't we just kind of something. Yeah. It, it, we just kind of took the thing of like, well, why not? You know, and that that's not to say that we were naive. I think it was more that we were like, there's never going to be an opportune moment to do this. So we felt like it was a good time to have a baby and we did. And it it ended up working out beautifully. I mean, it was hard being pregnant on campus because I threw up all the time. So I had to tell my teachers pretty early. And I, you know, I remember, I I think I've told you this before that we make a joke that um, I have dotted Harvard Yard with the many places that I had to throw up in bushes and elsewhere. Yes, But it, it, you know, it was... It was nice. I felt like people there were also really supportive. I felt like my professors were very supportive. You know, it's it's unique for grad school, but it's not entirely unheard of. So, and your family's reaction to it, they were. Yeah, I think they were. I think they were relieved. I mean, we'd been married for five years, so in in our family, they were like, you know, why are you waiting so long? But it was an invaluable situation for me because now I would look at my kids and say, you know. There's not, if you're, if you're looking for the perfect time, if you think, you know, at 30, once I have my career, it's going to be perfect, you know, you might be disappointed. Or if you have a child at 21 and then you don't go to college and you feel let down, it might not be ideal either. So unless, you know, instead of looking for like that most opportune moment, I think you just have to sort of be open and assess things and be smart. And, you know, the other thing too, is we waited because we knew that my husband was going to start work and that we would be able to financially support it, which was a big thing for us. We wanted to make sure that financially, you know, we had had lots of friends who had had babies in college when they had no money. And we wanted to make sure that by the time we chose to bring a child into this world, that financially we could support it. So that also played. It wasn't completely, why not? It was, this is, this is something we value. It's something we want. We want to be in the right financial position to be able to provide in the way that yes. we find. Yeah. Yes. It's so appropriate. Got it. Okay. Okay. So you have look, look Alani, right. Who mm-hmm. is beautiful and talented and all the things. What, what happens next? When do you have your son? So we have my son three years later, actually, while okay. I'm writing my thesis. So I have my daughter in my last year and then I have my son and I was pregnant when I walked and graduated. But graduation went really well. I did very well in my program. I graduated with uh, honors, with a dean's prize. I was asked to present my research at Harvard in a symposium. 
Congratulations. Thank so you. Neat. I'm very proud I of I really that. just wish your fam- <laughs> was your family at graduation and everything? Was it really? Yeah. So my grandma was there. My mom came oh. as well, but my grandma came and that was, it was so fulfilling to walk across the stage and see her face when I graduated oh. because, you know, she was there. Was she, she was crying? There. Oh yeah. Was she just, yes. oh. yeah. And she is not, oh, she is a woman of her generation. She is not outwardly right. emotional. So right, she, right. The greatest you know, she, generation. Yeah, yes. she was there. My grandma's 80, 84. So she was yep. there when she saw me, you know, in junior college thinking I should quit. And wow. so, oh. right? Like yes. full circle. In that, maybe you could take one class. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe two classes. Look at that. Wow. That's, that's so powerful. Okay. So you, you walk, you see your grandma, your grandma is crying. And are all the emotions just, does the whole past just fly through your head in in those moments or is it all just so much to be with? Yeah. I mean, societally look like I, I was born to an unwed teenage mother who did not graduate from college and I have, you know, same with my, my birth father. So yeah, absolutely. It was a moment of reflection of full circle of look what I've done and with a lot of with a lot of grit and a lot of getting it wrong and a lot of course correction and look at what we've done. Your path is fascinating to me because it isn't traditional. Uh, so what ha- it is, it's not at all. And the grit is absolutely part of the story. And like you're saying, a lot of getting it wrong, not going the way you wanted it to. So you graduate and then you, if I'm recalling this correctly, you don't go, you don't go to, New York to no. pursue. You had all the credentials, now, but you don't go to Broadway, even though you could have. So tell me about that. Like, how did that feel? So my vocal professor from Boston Conservatory told me that I was crazy <laughs> to not go to New York. And, and I, I'm not going to lie. I think I think a lot of people listening could think you don't want it bad enough. Sure. There is a little element of crazy, right? Yeah. But yeah. yeah, go on. I don't think of it as me not wanting it enough. I think of it as me choosing what was right for me. I could have gone to New York and I would have burned out really fast. I know Why? myself and know I am not the kind of person that enjoys going to auditions all the time. And even now, you know, even having an agent and getting submissions and, and looking at the material that I'm given, I am really picky about what I will spend my energy on. And mm. that is not because it's not worthwhile. It's that I have finite energy in the day And if I am spending it constantly, which auditions are rough, like they are an emotional juggernaut of, you know, putting yourself out there and the constant rejection. So I knew myself and I knew that I, that was not the way I wanted to live my life. And I respect the hell out of my friends who are on national tours and are on Broadway. They're amazing. You know, and maybe they have a different kind of grit than I do. But I knew myself well enough in that moment, especially making that decision with my spouse, because look, I'm not an island. I have a baby. I have a husband who's going to go into a corporate job. And so essentially, I was going to be living in a city by myself while my husband worked day and night, raising my daughter alone, auditioning, you know, getting a nanny auditioning when I could. And I just was looking down the barrel thinking, that is just not what I want to do. And that doesn't make it wrong or right. It just isn't what I wanted to do. So what was the end game? I mean, coming out of the Harvard program, which is phenomenal, what was the end game? Knowing that, yeah, if it's not New York, not LA, there must have been a different end game then. I mean, really the end game for us was that we were in debt from my husband's education, largely from living. Living was the highest expense of there because once in the law school, once you have a baby, another financial decision, they pay for Hello. So we didn't pay tuition for that last year. So when we made the choice to move to Texas, it was entirely an economic one. It was because economically speaking, we could pay off our loans really quickly. And we did. We paid off over $250,000 in five years. I think this is really important to pause on because especially in your industry and especially with your willpower and David's, it's kind of, you know, you go for your dreams. Nothing gets in the way. You go for your dreams. And I'm not by any means implying that you weren't going for your dreams, but I also am implying how important 
we'll just call it reality, quote unquote, yeah. is when yes. it comes to the way you like to live, the way you want to live, um, the lifestyle that you enjoy, and just fiscal matters matter. Well, and let's be clear. I I didn't need to live the starving artist lifestyle. I grew up in a starving artist lifestyle. You grew lifestyle. up in it. Yep. So I knew exactly right. what I was going to get myself into, and I just didn't want to do that. And I, I think, you know, maybe if I had been born in a different economic world, I would have felt very differently. And I look at my friends that are able to make those decisions. And I, I, in some ways I feel a little envious because I wish I had kind of a disregard for finances, but I am right. always so acutely aware of, is this financially stable? And really even truthfully right. in, in my career, it's when we've sort of found our legs financially that I felt permission internally to feel like, okay, I can do this now. And so that tracks perfectly with our financial situation to the point where I was like, okay, he is on his legs and now I can go be steady on mine. It's so important. So important. I just think that's the part that artists miss a lot is that go for your dreams, go do whatever you want, but you have to have a plan in place, right? Like even for other, other performance artists, I feel like there is not enough attention in schools in the United States, performing arts schools on how to work out your life when it is non-traditional. What do you do? What happens if you get injured? What happens if you have a health scare? What happens if something traumatic happens and you have to change course? Do you just let it all go or do you figure out a pivot? And so for me, that was teaching. I had taught before voice, but teaching sort of came about as another pivot of me to, you know, get my feet wet, to start doing stuff again after I'd had my son and written my thesis. And it ended up being so creatively fulfilling to me that had I been so focused solely on if I am not performing nonstop, I am not valid. I am not worthy. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So really interesting. It's really interesting, Malia. It's because I just think that how, how a person wants to live and what is on their mind, like what keeps them up at night? Um, what's kind of uh, the metric, I guess I would say, like the barometer for um, just judging decisions and making them. There mm-hmm. are a lot of factors in that. And one is not better than the other. It depends on who you are and what you've been through. Um, I like that you said, ah, like, I, I, w- I wonder, I wonder what it would have been like if I had grown up in a different economic situation like, would I, would I have gone to New York? Like, would I have gone to, like, would I have made some different calls at the same time you're going, yeah, but like, this is something I valued. Let's just, let's just call a spade a spade. I valued the security of the finances and you could back that up all day long. I think every parent could back that up for you saying, oh, my daughter played it right. And they moved to Houston, by the way, like for a theater person who moves to Houston, Texas, nobody even knows where Houston, Texas is, People know where Austin, Texas is, and that's hilarious because Houston is the third largest city in the country, right? Well, so awesome it's just theater scene, a great you know, it has a huge scene. performing art scene, yes. huge, especially dance. So I'm yeah. like, what the ballet, the Houston ballet, Houston so, opera, the Houston, and the Houston opera, opera. Is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, they're big, they're big time. But I just think again, it's that it's the external, it's that it's that degree. It's that theater company. It's that, it's what people recognize. And I just, it comes back, I come back to, wow, if we can be really, really narrow and that's fine if you make it into that one or two slots, gold, good, like congratulations, gold medal all day long. But what do you do if you don't? And then if you don't, if you don't even go for that, is that okay? And could be, I say it, speak from how competitive your industry is and how competitive a lot of people's industries are. And so how you sit with, wow, I didn't even go or like, um, I failed. I didn't go get into Boco and just realizing like, no, there are so many different paths to take. And there is no shame in saying, uh, no, like actually I was just, we're, we're playing, we're on the f- fiscally responsible game, like train, I should say that like, we're into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think looking back, that was a bad, I don't think you go, Oh, that was, that was silly or foolish. Right. It, I don't right. think so, but I could be wrong. I could yeah, be wrong. And I think that I, these are th- still things that I wrestle with, which is feeling right. internally validated as opposed to looking to institutions to validate me. I love uh, that you say that. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, truthfully, like I, I've told you this before that I had a uh, master teacher 
who's been in dozens of Broadway shows, say to me at the end of the day, it's just another stage. It's a job. And that mm-hmm. was illuminating to me. Not that Broadway isn't great. I think it's amazing. And, you know, I still I still audition for Broadway and national tours. I, I, I am in that world. But I'm also not looking for it to validate me anymore. And I think that's something that's developed over time. And that's not because I wouldn't welcome the opportunity. It's because I found such success and satisfaction in regional work. Because the truth is, those artists, when they're in between shows, they are going to they all go to the regional, regional work. theaters. That's, that's right. where they're working. And I think that's that right. we're so postist where we only, and I mean, I should speak, I am in you know a suburb of San Francisco, so I do have access to a lot of theaters that I, I work with, but they are missing the opportunity of all these amazing regional theaters, right? There's so much work happening in the middle of the country, like mm-hmm. in Houston, that people don't even realize I felt the same way, a different industry completely, but about Houston, I I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe how narrow uh, growing up in New York and then, you know, spending 15 years in, well, growing up in California and then spending 15 years in New York. Oh yeah. (laughs) They're flyover states. That's what I grew up with. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So bring us to up to today. And then, so you're teaching, didn't think you'd be teaching, uh, but so far so good. You love it. You kind of like it? How's it going? I love it. No, I love it. So I balance my time in non-COVID time. I balance my time between, you know, callbacks, auditions, working with theaters and teaching my private voice studio. But now- And how'd you get that? How'd how'd you get that going? Like somebody said, hey, Malia, help me sing early. And you're like, okay. That's literally how it happened. Look Uh, at me. Okay. We were new to California and I had a friend who had heard me sing and she asked me if I would teach her kids. And usually I don't teach children. I There's a whole reason in yes, that anatomically why I think children should wait. Yep. But they were working on a specific project and I thought, sure, why not? And then because of that, it just sort of word of mouth. So I have had, you know, at least a 10 to 15 person wait list for the last four years to teach. And all I word of mouth? Is that what happened? word of mouth. Yeah. Wow. Completely word of mouth. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're teaching uh, and it's growing organically, like you never thought it would. And now you're playing the social media game. And it sounds like that's helping growth in an unexpected way. For me, the goal of social media is one, I love to sing. And especially on mediums like TikTok, there are just millions of people on there singing and looking for, you know, internet fame. And you didn't and know that going in. I had what, what no made you go idea. to that platform? Yeah. So I had a, a fellow voice teacher who recommended it and said, there's lots ah, of theater kids on there. So it. I I thought, well, okay. So I started this account two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I'm up okay. to 700 followers. And huh. congratulations. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. So it's ridiculous. In a great way. The small but mighty number. And now as musical theaters are completely transitioning to everything happening online, you know, for my career, it only benefits me to do the thing that I love, which is to sing and to help other people. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for all of your students. I'm excited for everything you're auditioning for. And your children are ridiculously cool and wonderful. And um, we didn't even talk about modern parenting, but that's another podcast in and of itself. I just want to say, Malia, thank you for sharing sharing time and sharing your journey uh, with me and with our audience and our community. It's awesome. It's invaluable. And just I can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me on. Okay, go, go, go TikTok it up. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> that's where I can find you. 